Isn't that a good picture of discipleship? Right? I just love that video because what it says is that as a child really desires to be with the one who has their life in their hands, who is loving them and walking them through how to live this life, how to bake cookies, right? It's like that's what God is for us. It's like we are trusting in the one who is leading us. And, and it is waiting, right? And it is being patient. And it is learning. And it is failing. And sometimes it's messy and really goofy and goopy and all those things. However, God is leading us home. Amen? So, good morning. Welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you for those of you who are watching and joining us online. We are so glad that you're here. We have a really good group here today. And so, I pray that, pray that this message blesses you. We started this series two weeks ago uh, on discipleship. And we're, we're covering seven traits of a disciple. So last week we covered one, and this week we're going to cover another. But it's like the question comes in, okay, so what is a disciple and why should I be one? It's like a disciple, it's a very simple word for it, it's just learner. I'm a learner, I'm a student, and we want to be disciples of Jesus. And so we want him to be our Lord, our Savior, our leader, our master, our guide through this life. Because he did say... I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, if I'm going to be a learner of Jesus, why would I do that? Why be a learner? Why be a follower? Why be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And we said last week, because following Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Following Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And that really flies in the face of a lot of things that you'll hear out in our culture and out in our world. Who believes that, you know, I can be okay and you can be okay and your way is not necessarily my way and my way is And there are multiple ways to get to heaven. No, there's not. Because Jesus did say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It's true or it's not true. And so we believe that to be true. In fact, if for those of you who have searched to try to find truth and to try to find life in anything outside of Jesus, I can tell you, you didn't find it. Or, or you wouldn't be here, and our society wouldn't be messed up. Right? And so, all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so, this is our goal for the series, is that not only would you believe, come to really believe in Jesus but that you personally would receive him, that you would make Jesus Lord of your life, that you would become convicted that his way of life is the only way, the right way, the real way to live your life. Because we come into this series and we're like, okay, so how do I find real life? Where do I find meaning and purpose? And what, what is the foundation for all of my decisions and to explain the world and everything and the existence all around me? What is the source of that? Where do I go for that? And so what we want to do is just kind of stop and pause and ask, okay, what is the foundation for how you live your life? You make decisions every day, every night. And those decisions are based on what? And so we said out of the seven traits of a disciple last week, the trait number one, a disciple has a passion to personally know Jesus. I have a real desire to get to know him greater or better than I ever have before in my life. And that is the goal. That is what I, I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I want to run after him with all my heart. And then today we're going to talk about a disciple of Jesus seeks biblical truth. Now I need to tell you, this is really big in our world today. 
Now, it may not necessarily be a big deal to those of you who are here in the room. Maybe most of you or not, or all of you have decided, yeah, uh, uh, there is a biblical truth. And that is the foundation for my life. Maybe all of those who are watching online and sitting on your couch, you believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God. And that nothing changes outside of that. And that it holds the answers to everything and pertains to everything in life and godliness, the hereafter, and explains everything. Maybe you believe that, but you know, our, our world doesn't, do they? Now, here are a couple of quotes I really like. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Right? Now, at any time, if you see something that you like, take out your phone and take a picture. You know, just take a picture of it and go back and just study and read and find something that you can post on your Facebook page, something that you believe to be a truth, you know, for you. So this is really great. That's really true. Man, my grandfather, that just reminds me of my grandfather. You'd walk in his office, and he had so many Bibles that he had just worn out. And so as his grandson, when I was, he was in Houston, Texas, and I got to work with my grandfather for three years. But when I was leaving, I had one request. I wanted one of his Bibles that fell apart. Not because I could read out of it, but because it was a symbol of how to live my life. Get so into the Word of God that the actual Bible falls apart and it keeps your life from doing the same. Here's another one by Dwight Moody. Out of 100 men, one will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. Have you ever seen that, heard that? And what it really says is, is that, you know, people are, a lot of people are never going to read. The, you may be the only Bible somebody ever reads. Have you heard it worded that way? And so be careful how you live, how you talk, how you act, what you do. Because people are getting a judgment on God based on the fact that you consider or call yourself a Christian. Now, that's a very important message. I really want to focus on the other part of this message, which says, What happens to a nation when only one out of a hundred read the Bible? That really, that, that, that really is what is concerning me today. You know, because our, our world has gone through a lot of changes and are trying to decide, especially our young people, are trying to decide, how should I make decisions in my life? And so, as we began to look into this subject, I thought this was an interesting statistic. What percent of Americans say there is no such thing as ultimate or absolute truth? That there is no absolute truth. There's no place that you can go to find it. There's no source of absolute truth. What percent of Americans? 56, 80? 70 percent of people in our country do not believe that there is an ultimate truth or an ultimate source of that truth. And to me, that says a lot about a country that's in confusion. What concerns me is that when you get into, uh, and I'm going to use the big, big church for, for people who are Christians, all denominations, all across America. When they ask the same question to Christians, people who say, yep, I'm a Christian, that statistic did not get much better. Now, for us, you know, we have our, our group here. We have, a, you know, just a few hundred of us who gather, you know, online and here in the church and 
And it, uh, through COVID, it's kind of hard to know the size of your church anymore, right? But, but maybe you're like, man, I, I certainly believe that there's an absolute truth and that that truth is found in the Word of God. But I bet if we were to dig a little deeper, you know, we have a lot of people are like, well, I don't know that I believe every story in the Bible. I don't know that I believe everything. I don't know that. I mean, I think it's a really good source for finding some truth. What, where do you stand? So here are my two questions. What is your foundation for explaining the world around us? I mean, just you, for just individually you. What is your foundation for just ex explaining existence and the world and everything around you? And then second, what is your foundation for making moral decisions? Where do you go to find the principles for how you should live your life? The way you should talk, the way you should act, the career you should follow, the way you do your finances, the way you do relationships. Where do you go to find ultimate truth or just a foundation for making moral decisions? So our society for 1,700 years, and I'm really only backing up to the time of Christ. So from the time of Christ forward, for 1,700 years, have viewed life as a, really in a, out of a spiritual context. Where we believe there's a spiritual realm and there's a physical realm and somehow the two interact. It might be mysterious. We may not necessarily know how to explain it all. But there's, but there's something bigger than us. There's a spiritual realm and a physical realm and somehow they interact. Paul walked into this in Athens. We have it recorded in Acts 17. So Paul standing before the council addressed them as follows. Men of Athens. I noticed that you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it. To an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. Now that's how he started his message. Because in Athens, you know, he, when he walked through the streets, they had idols and shrines and gods of every kind. One to the sun, one to the moon, and one to the stars, and one to, they just, you know, to the rain. They had one for everything. And just in case they missed one, they had an altar, a little shrine, a little god to the unknown god. And they would say, we don't know your name, but we want you to reveal yourself. But we don't want to make you mad because you may not bless our life. And so we have it here where we, we, we just don't know your name yet. And so what Paul is saying is, I can tell that you believe that there's something bigger than us that exists. There's, there's something spiritual about our world. And those of us who are here trying to make sense of everything, somehow we interact and we want you to bless us. So for 1,700 years in a nation, this really existed. So really only a couple of last couple of hundred years where we got into modernism and postmodernism and, and the whole idea that, well, maybe there's a better or a different explanation for the way things work. You know, so we started looking at science and all of a sudden we're looking at science and reason. And so modernism really talked about, well, you know, it's, it's, our, our ideas are so old, they're so conservative, there's got to be a fresh way, a new way of looking at everything. And so Origin of Species by Charles Darwin began to look at natural selection. And there's a different explanation for how we got to where we are. And people, ooh and ah, and started buying into it. And all of a sudden now, our society, and I'm just not talking about America, as you know, I'm talking about the world has a different idea as to how we came about. Sir Isaac Newton said, well, you know, there are really laws 
that, that make sense, that, that govern, that keep, that hold everything together. And you can know those laws. And it has a very physical, you know, uh, structure behind it. And so we said, oh, well, the, the whole world is held together by these natural laws. And so it became very popular to be able to think about life without a God. And this has really only been in the last couple of hundred years. And so as people began to think about what is life without God, you can't prove that there's a God and there's not a God. And so now we've gone through modernism, which really began its move to move away from God into, you know, postmodernism. And so here, I'm just going to give you a couple of books. You can go find them if you want. This right here is a fantastic book. I haven't even read it all. I've read through the, you know, some of it. But, uh, but I'm telling you, from all of the stuff that I've read about this book, if you just want a really good handle on why we think the way we think, and it was written in the 90s, like 95, 96. But so we said, we started from the supernatural spiritual world that exists, this co-dual this co world spiritual world, physical world, and somehow they interact. We threw that away and we said, okay, so science and reason are a better explanation of our world and our existence. And people started buying into it. And we grabbed hold of it. And so much so that in America, in our universities and schools, unless you're going to a private school or a Christian school, they've even thrown out the idea of creation altogether and it's about all they teach. And there's a reason, you know, for that. And so, what do you do when you begin to look at science and reason for everything? And really, what do you do when, number three, you begin to realize that science and reason cannot explain everything? Which led us into this postmodern thought. And it's not taken very long now for people to begin to realize that all of these thoughts don't make sense. And that lives, they're not, I mean, so science and reason are not a really good explanation for why there's poverty in the world. Or all the social injustice stuff. And so, in this postmodern thought, the way that it just continues to move, it's they had already thrown out. Here's just a, a list of things that they've thrown out. One of them was morality or, and or truth. So they've just kind of thrown out God altogether. But more than that, in postmodern thought, they are also throwing out reason and science as explanations for our world. Now, what happens when you throw all of that out? When you say there is no absolute truth, there is no God, there is no standard for morality, and there is not reason, there's not science, and we have no explanation for why we're dealing with some of the things that we deal with today, you end up with a whatever society. Whatever. Whatever's right for you is right for you. And whatever's right for me is right for me, and you have no right to push your whatever on my whatever. You can have your truth, and I can have my truth, but there really is no ultimate truth, absolute truth. Well, what happens when people like that bump into each other? Just look at our nation today, right? And so we, there are still some people who are clinging to just because really they don't want to address God at all. And so if I can't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it, and test it, it can't be true. And so that really is more that science and reason kind of thing. Now, listen, there are two reasons why people do it. One, because they weren't taught or didn't they grow up in a way just looking at a spiritual component to our world and to life. But the second, and I feel the bigger reason, is because for whatever reason, people don't want to change their life. And if, they, and if you admit that there's an ultimate truth and it's found in God, 
then you would have to make different decisions. People don't want to make different decisions, so they just find a way to explain it away. But then, what do people say? Well, popular opinion is a better basis for my decision-making, which is really what's going on now. Well, look at everybody, their popular opinion, and, and people are herding crowds, and, and they're going and they're tearing down things and tearing up things, and, and our world, and people are like, oh, popular opinion. Maybe that's what we should go into because that's the way I can get a vote or that's the way I can get money or that's the way I can be popular. That's the way I can avoid persecution. But what happens when popular opinion changes its opinion? Well, then maybe feelings are how I identify as the best basis or standard for my choices. I have an identity and you can't run over it. It's right for me. But there is no ultimate truth. Well, what happens if your feelings lead you to make decisions that have consequences bigger than you can handle? Then what? When your life begins to fall apart because you followed what you thought felt right, where do you go? What do you do? When the foundations are being destroyed... What can the righteous do? Psalm 11, verse 3. And so to me, this is a big, big subject. At some point, you have to just sit down and wrestle to the ground. Okay, how am I going to make decisions in my life? What is the foundation for my life? Because Jesus even said, if you don't do that, you're building a house like on sinking sand. And everything is going to crumble around it. Your life is going to fall apart. And when it does, you'll have nothing to hold on to. For those of you who are married, you know it's very important as husband and wife to come around what is going to be the foundation of how we live our life. Of how we make decisions. How we treat each other. What we're going to do. If you have children, how are we going to raise our children? So that they begin to understand there really is a truth in the world. Is that too unreasonable to think or ask? So as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want to say, number one, realize that it's reasonable to desire truth. When people tell you you're crazy, for believing that there is an ultimate truth, or you're naive, or you're conservative, or you're old-fashioned. Listen, our world is falling apart, and they've tried to eliminate God, and they're finding no answers. Right? Or maybe you're in the middle of it. So, I, for me, I'll just speak just for me. Number one, it's reasonable to desire truth. I do desire truth. I want to know, like when, when the psalmist said that God lifted me out of the miry clay and set me on solid ground and put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to him, what is that new ground? If my life is falling apart, my marriage is falling apart, my finances are falling apart, my career is falling apart, relationships are falling apart, on what can I stand and build something better, something different? It's reasonable to desire truth. Here are a couple of scriptures, Zechariah 8. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgments in your courts. The Bible believes that there is a truth. Well, I don't know that I believe in the Bible. Well, we can get to that in a minute. But there is a truth. There, is, there has to be a truth. 
There has to be something. Our world has way too much order for there not to be something singular that is true. And there, there is. And I believe there is a truth. First Corinthians, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. There is a truth. There is ultimate truth, absolute truth. And it's reasonable to expect the same. A third verse, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, it's, so it is reasonable to believe there is a truth and it's ultimate and it's for all time. Its principles stand true no matter what generation you grow up in. And if God allows the world to exist for another 2,000 years, there will be a truth that will hold up. And it's reasonable to expect it. Not only is it reasonable to expect and, and really desire truth, but you can search for that ultimate truth in God. And so, do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. Just a, it's just a verse that says God, God is the source of truth. God is truth. Remember, we've already covered the verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus claims to be the truth. In a minute, we're going to read a verse where it says, and the spirit of truth will guide you. Right? So it, it is reasonable to believe that there is an ultimate truth and that it is found in God. Here's Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So that's really, the, to me, the crux of the matter. Is that there, there is a truth. The dissonance comes because I have an undivided heart. Because there's something inside me that really wants to go my own way. That I can figure it out on my own. That I don't need everybody else speaking into how they think I should live my life. But what he's saying is truth is sometimes we just don't want to admit that Jesus needs to be the Lord of our life. Other times we just think, you know, I think, like, I, think I have a better way. So he's like, there is a truth, but I don't want an undivided heart. I want to somehow learn how... To merge my life into the way, the truth, and the life. Here's another verse, John 8. If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth. And the truth will. Man, where were you when you discovered that? I've shared too many times different stories in my life. And, and for those of you who've been around a while, and sometimes my wife tells me that I tell the same stories over and over and over, and I'm like, well, they're the only ones I got. And so, so I'm sorry for those of you who've heard it, but I can tell you exactly where I was standing underneath that light in the middle of the night in an empty parking lot next to a church building. My life was falling apart when I cried out to God. And it was the first time I made a decision to tell everybody everything about me. And I was afraid they would all run away. And I would lose everything that was important to me. But I had to do it because my life was falling apart. And the great thing that I discovered 
is that God wasn't trying to destroy me. He wasn't even trying to punish me. He was trying to save me. And for the first time, I walked by faith. Because I'm going to tell you some stuff, and, and I no longer can control it. I can't control your response. I can't control anything. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And I discovered the truth and started to walk in it. And to my delight, 2 Samuel 14, 14. Like water spilt on the ground that cannot be gathered up again, so is our life. In other words, there are often times when you're going to feel like your life is a mess and needs to just be swept away. And then they make this, he makes this comment about God. However, God is not trying to destroy your life, but he's trying to bring the banished person back to him. And man, you will discover when you decide to live by truth, to live by faith, that you're going to find the freedom you've always longed for. That's just, I wish I could just sit on that forever. You know, because that is so true, so true, and so hard to do. Because we're like, you know what, if people would treat me like, you know, when I do that, if people would treat me like Jesus, then it would be a whole lot easier. But the people that I trust don't know Jesus. <laughs> and they're not going to treat me like God treats me. They're going to be mean. And they're going to go after me. Man, I'm sorry. But live truth anyway. And God will rescue you. Amen? John 16, 13. But when he, here it is, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak his, you know, his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. God has plans for you. He has plans for your success and not your demise, not your failure. He has ultimate plans that's going to take you to heaven. And you can trust it. You can trust it. And I know it's, man, that's a scary thing. But as long as we hide in fear and avoid truth, our nation's going to just continue to walk in the opposite direction. And at some point, we've got to begin setting people free. So it's reasonable to desire truth and to seek that truth in God. And then number three, to discover the best source of the revelation is the Word of God. That, that truth, is, there is a truth that's found in God and his word, the Bible, is the ultimate source for that. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Well, why do we need to correctly handle the word of truth? Well, Hebrews 4 says this, for the word of God is alive, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart because it, it's pointed. It's alive. It can be used as a weapon or it can be used to heal and bring people together. And, and you get to choose what that's like, how that works. And so he's like, you never, you never have permission to use the word of God as a whipping tool. To go just tell everybody they're going to hell as if you're happy about it. You use the word of God to bring people back. And you, and you do it gently. And you do it honoring because God wants everybody saved. But the word of God is alive and active and will stand the test of time. And by the way, 
when it comes to science and reason and all that kind of stuff, you never have to worry about what science is going to uncover, unearth, or discover. You never have to worry about it. There's in the last 200 years, there's been a lot of archaeology. They've uncovered a lot of stuff. And all they do is prove the word of God to be true. You don't ever have to worry about that. Right? Because God even said that the mountains scream the glory of God. Which means that when they search the mountains and they find hidden stuff in them, all they're going to do is find more of God. Okay? So you don't ever have to worry about that. 2 Timothy 3. And from how? This is Paul writing to Timothy. And Timothy was like his son in the faith. And so he was talking to Timothy about how, man, you've been learning God and learning his word since you were young. How from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God wants you to be prepared for everything. And so now go back to that, that quote. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone whose life isn't. Right? And so he's like, man, get into the Word of God. And, and so now this is just a, and this is rhetorical. I'm just asking quietly. I don't want you to, you know, how much time do you spend in the Word of God? You know, in fact, what I, you know, what I, well, I guess what I should have done is brought up a mirror and a Bible and put them both on the, you know, just on a little table and, and just ask you, okay, which of these two objects get more of your attention <laughs> on a daily basis? The mirror or the Bible? One of them just reflects more of us. Man, I'm spending so much time. Look at how good I look. Or I need some makeup. Or I need something. But we just look in the mirror and we try to dress ourselves up. But the more I just look in the mirror, the more I make myself king of my own life. But the more you spend time in the word of God. So which, right? So let God speak to you. If you've eliminated it, if you spend no time in the word of God, I can tell you your foundation for life is shaky. And you need to firm it up. This is why small groups are so important is as Savannah was telling us. Because it gets us around the word of God. It just gets us active and alive and letting God speak. And you can ask the question. Well, what is there in the Bible that speaks about relationships? Or speaks about uh, how to control my tongue? Or, or chasing down a career? You know, or sh should I buy this or buy that? I mean, what does the Bible say about ask any question? And you'll find all the principles here in the word of God. So, as we conclude, know what you believe. You need to know what you believe. What is your foundation? What is it that you want to do with your one wild and precious life? And if someone's going to partner with you for life, they should know what is your foundation for the way you make all of your decisions. Because if you don't have one, you're not going to be trustworthy enough for them to give themselves completely to you. But if you do have one, then they can decide how we're going to come together. You know what I'm saying? It's like, what is your foundation? Know what you believe. Know where others are coming from. And we need to know we're in a world who does not honor the word of God or believe that there's an ultimate truth. At least 70% of the people around you are not going to spend time reading the word of God 
or using that as the foundation for their decisions. How do we, what do we do with that? How do we bridge that gap? Number three, watch your words. Watch how you act. Watch how you live. And watch what you say and how you say it. Watch how you use the word of God. And then remember, people are of highest importance. We're trying to save people, not beat them up. Look at what I was reading a while ago, those scriptures about that God's, you know, the word of God is active and alive and that we should be careful because it can instruct and it can rebuke and it can correct. But look at what else he said in 2 Timothy. Keep reminding, this is what I'm supposed to do for you. So Paul told Timothy, when you get to church, keep reminding people of this. So I'm supposed to do the same thing. Keep reminding people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more You're not, your, your job is not to go and fight people and tell them how bad they are. Our job is not to go out and say, you're all going to hell. You, are you hungry? Let's go eat. It's, it, it, that's not our job. Our job we're not to, to quarrel and fight. We're not to beat people up with the word. We're to lead people home. And so Simon Peter said, here's the other side of that. We're, it's not that we're not supposed to say anything. Jesus was asking him, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Look at Jesus' response. And I'll tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has revealed to you a truth. There is a Messiah. He is the son of God. And, and the foundation of who we are is based on that. And then he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against He didn't say that the church won't be able to prevail against the gates of hell. He says the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the, this truth. Hell and gates. Gates, that's not a very offensive, you know, that's not, they're not on the offense. That's a very defensive thing. Gates are meant to keep somebody out, which means, church, we are to advance the kingdom of God. You are to take truth into the world. And to help people understand there is a God. He is alive. And he speaks into your life. And to the decisions that we should make. And we're to advance that. And hell will not be able. Our society will not be able to stand against it. So stand firm then. With the belt of truth. Buckled around your waist. You stand, you, everything in your life should be held together. With the truth of the word of God. Woo. A disciple of Jesus seeks biblical truth. Do you agree? Do you agree? Does that make man stand in stand in that? Let's teach our children that. Let's walk in that. Moms and dads, open up the Word of God and study it. Do it with your children. Do it with your neighbors. Do it with your friends. Do it in your life. You'll find life in the pages of those books let's pray